Hey everyone, I'm Brendan Hill, and this is Forward Thinking, a podcast by Metagy. Each week, I talk to inspirational business owners, brands, and marketing experts to learn from their experiences on the front line and uncover what it takes to build a world-class business. And this week, my very special guest is Jeff Main, founder of Passionberry Marketing, a boutique agency that provides integrated marketing and communication strategies. When I put the call out that I was looking to talk to another marketing expert, the number one name that came back was Jeff from Passionberry, and he was more than willing to offer up his time to help out you guys listening at home straight away. So I hope you've picked up on a common theme with the first five guests that we've had on the Forward Thinking podcast. These people always ask what they can do to help first, and there's definitely a correlation between them helping others and their success. In my conversation with Jeff, we cover a wide range of topics, including why a cookie-cutter approach to your marketing will just not work, why growth hacking is not the starting point of your marketing activity, and how to take that first step and actually start your digital marketing campaign for your business. Jeff also touches on business lessons that he learned from his parents and how he's actually applied them to his business today. And that's another thing that came up in our last episode with Cheryl Mack on episode five. She was talking about her parents running a business when she was a kid. She learned her work ethic and she also learned to treat her staff with respect from her parents. So interested to hear if your parents have influenced your business as well. Let us know in the comments and the reviews. So please enjoy this wide-ranging marketing discussion with Jeff Main. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Happy to be here. So you've been in marketing now for over 20 years. Can you tell us the story of your first exposure to marketing? It probably started when I was really young. I love cricket and I lucky enough lived about a kilometre away from the cricket ground in, in Hamilton in New Zealand where I lived. And so I had to try and work out a way of how to get into the ground for free. And so I managed to find a way where I was selling pies and Coke out of the pie cart which right. had an unobstructed view of the ground. Perfect. And so it was, it was great. And then you'd just kind of go from there and do lots of fundraising for sports trips and stuff. And w- when did you come to the realization that, you know, this was an area that you wanted to dedicate a decent amount of your life to? So I was at university. I'd, I was doing a management degree, but hadn't quite worked out what I liked. I loved problem solving. I loved sort of building things and I loved the strategic thinking. How do you make that happen? And then it was at summer school in my second year and it was my first time doing a marketing paper. And it just sort of seemed like everything came together. Like marketing was the genesis of this idea of where you can bring strategy and how you build a product or service and how do you really connect with people, understanding their truths and and how do you actually make something that actually can improve people's lives. And it felt like marketing was the place where that started. You know, sales is important. Making sure it's profitable is important. But that was kind of felt like that's where the start was. So interesting. It went from there. Awesome. And I mean, now you're working with a lot of early stage, small businesses, medium businesses and startups. What are the main pain points that you see most of these guys are having? They're well-rounded individuals with a couple of areas where they've got some specific knowledge. So they're either passionate about what they do and have a really core understanding around the problem or they're very technically minded in terms of how to build a solution. But there's sometimes a general lack of awareness of how do I build this or how do I connect more people so they can come and find me? Mm. So not only just the acquisition, but then how do I retain these people? What's important to them and how do I build something that I can then scale? And that's a challenge everyone faces and it's there's no cookie cutter approach. 
Mm. But if you're able to think strategically and understand people and take a lot of those principles you learn from either a marketing degree or just through life, you can then apply it to that specific situation. And half the challenge for me is actually asking the questions of the startup and pulling the answers out of them to then help them build a solution for themselves. So how do you get these answers out of the startups? Because, I mean, they have a lot of information, obviously, hard to analyze. I mean, they're close to their business every day. So how do you take a step back and help them on that journey? Usually you always start with the core question. So what's your unique selling proposition or why did you get started? What makes you different? What's the problem you're truly trying to solve? And sometimes they'll say one thing and then you just, sometimes you might use five whys. So you might ask them, why is that important to someone? Why is that important to Mm. someone? And they kind of eventually get sometimes the core of the idea they might not have got to yet. And then from there you start saying, okay, well, who are the people who are most benefiting? You'd start asking those questions about the sort of the target market and understanding what those benefits are and what product or service would do to help them. And then you start trying to match that up versus say market fit, product fit, sometimes the channels you might use, and then actually what's the business model behind it? Because you need to have all those four working together. But you start with the very beginning and then you just slowly but surely kind of build it. And then hopefully over time, at the initial sessions, they usually get very clear on the market and the product. And then if they want to have other sessions, it kind of comes clear either over time for themselves or we'll just have more conversations later on. Mm. Are there any stories that you can tell us of some success stories that you've had of businesses that you've taken through these processes? Yeah, it's interesting because I've worked a lot in corporate and a lot of what I've learned out of corporate applies to startups, but a lot of what startups do and how they should work actually would help a truckload of corporates. It's just the corporate inability or the challenge for corporates is how do you act like a startup entrepreneurial with all the round rules around that? So one of the key successes, probably one of the more recent ones, which was Nabo, which was a social network for neighborhoods. That recently got bought out last year by Nextdoor, and they're doing a fabulous job trying to connect neighborhoods across the world. But the interesting thing for me was when I came in, um, it was clear that it had some strengths and some weaknesses, and it was actually building those out. And so we had ground cover across a lot of parts of Australia, but not really focused on those core areas. And if you want to create something that's going to grow, you need to have those super strong advocates or foundations, whether it's a market, a service that you provide to be able to grow. So I filled those out. Well, try to fill it out as best as I could uh, (laughs) with the team. We also looked at a lot of different acquisition strategies, but it became clear we needed to acquire people who were going to do three things for us, not just one. So one thing is the sign up, Mm -hmm. but you also wanted someone to generate content as well. And you also wanted someone who might reply or engage or come back and read. Um, And then you also would ideally love someone who would potentially be a lead within that suburb who could help new users come on board, um, help answer FAQ and all that sort of thing. So if you can get one person to do three or four things, then you're making your life a lot easier and you're actually making things scalable. Mm. So we did a lot of that. A lot of the focus around new users wasn't around people who were going to become a new user. It was about people who were going to be a user in three months' time. Right. So it was focusing on people who were going to be more likely to be retained, which therefore makes you more valuable. So probably the easiest measurement I can have is when we started comparing the neighbor metrics in the same time period in terms of from when you started to how you're going on your journey versus next doors. We were well behind the apple when I started, and within nine months, we were ahead of where they were at the same lifetime. So that was the major change, and it was only once we'd 
kind of gone through that process of listening to next door to actually see where had we been successful versus them and what had mm. they done and, and what were their learnings because it kind of gave you some validation about what you'd been doing. Because mm. that's one of the toughest things, as you know, for a startup. It's like, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. No matter what <laughs> part of it's like with the tech, mm. um, with the engagement, with just how I treat my people. Yeah. So I mean, it's an interesting point you touch on uh, analyzing the competitors and similar companies in your space. And a lot of startups and small businesses don't do that in the early days. But I mean, as you said, it can validate your idea, can learn a lot of lessons, see what channels they're using already. I mean, there's always that famous quote from Sun Tzu, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. So there's so many advantages of knowing what your competitors are doing, what's worked for them in the past, what channels have worked. I mean, you can use tools like SpyFu and SEMrush to see what channels that your competitors are already having success in. I mean, what other reasons are there to research your competitors? So there's a bit where it's a fine line between what do I learn from my competitors, but also staying true to my idea. Mm. That's a balancing act that goes all the way through. I think from your competitors, what you're trying to learn is, it's like sometimes playing chess. If you know what your competitors likely to do, you can actually not only counter that move, you can actually set yourself up for success. Um, I don't play the game Go, but I've seen how you can actually use Go to block your competitors off from certain areas. And so that's something I really strongly believe in when you're building the strategy is that actually tactically you're, you're trying to block them off. It may not be clear when you start, but it becomes clearer as you move on. So the key things I've found is you've got to build barriers of entry. So we're dealing with, say, a, a local store, for example, if you're trying to be a premium product, build partnerships with the other premium brands in your area for sort of services that are like or in the same sort of consumer set as yours. So we work with Luxaflex. They do blinds, awnings, shades, and shutters. We've got a really strong partnership with them, and we do a lot of really good work with them, but they do some great work as well. But what we focus on is, okay, well, who's the best interior designers in your suburb? Who are the best builders or developers in your suburb? Who are the best sort of architects? Who are the best furniture stores? Right. And if you're working with those, they're the type of, their consumers will likely be more likely to be your type of consumers. Mm. So for the digital growth hackers out there, and I'm not a fan of growth marketing for a couple of reasons, but it's the same thing as lookalike audiences. You're just taking these consumers that are interested in furniture, they're likely to be going to be interested in the same type of products when they look at windows. And that works. And as well as if you've got the best businesses referring con people to you and as well as vouching for you from a social proof perspective, you might not have worked with this store, but hang on, this store, oh, I really love, they love them as well, so they must be good. But you're building it in real life rather than as we do with Google review testimonials and video testimonials and all this sort of stuff when we're yeah. dealing with startups digitally. So, Very interesting. I just want to rewind a second. You uh, <laughs> said that you're not a big fan of growth marketing or Growth hacking, yeah. um, I mean, a recent sort of trend uh, coming out of the Silicon Valley area from Sean Ellis back in 2011, I think it was. So tell me your views on growth hacking. Yeah, so absolutely has its place, but everyone thinks it's like an end result. And like good marketers do growth hacking, but they also do growth selling and they also set up retention and everything else. Yeah. So growth hacking is very tactical and that's great, mm. but you've actually got to line it with a strategy. And so the growth hacking is helpful for executional plays, but people seem to start with this as the starting point. It's yeah. not. Mm. So it's really helpful. Like I love looking at some of the tactics and go, oh, that'd be really quite good. I could use that to help me with this type of campaign. Yeah. The problem is you're not aiming for a campaign. You're aiming for a consumer and end result mm. and acquisition. 
So actually growth actually is driven by having really sustainable processes in your startup. So if I have an automated referral mechanism where it automatically asks for review and everything else, then that will slowly build and it will also save you time so you can focus on that other things. Mm. So, I mean, I know I've seen some people say that those processes is growth marketing, which I, if that's the case, I agree with. Yep. But the growth hacking thing feels like it's quite a, a tactical piece. It can absolutely deliver multiple home runs with one specific tactic. And mm. and those are the unicorn approach of examples that I see. Yeah. But what you're looking for is the really strongest products and startups and everything else that I've seen. Even talking to investors in San Fran when I've had the opportunity, it's about the build. It's about the strategy. It's about building in those processes and building in things that are actually going to make a sizable difference going forward rather than the small tactical things. So that element of sustainability as well. Yeah. So hacking's useful as a tool, but it shouldn't be the end game that I hear a lot of people talk about it in that way. And that maybe I'm misreading that, but I've always learned that a, a great marketer is at least a good salesperson, mm. has at least good salespeople skills, and a great salesperson always has at least good marketing skills. Yeah. Because marketing, it's not about developing a brand and mm. that is part of it, but building a brand is actually to build a business model, yeah. build something that actually will last and deliver money if you're profitable inclined or create a social good or a, a make a difference within a community or whatever your purpose is as a business. Mm. So you mentioned sales skills. Obviously, every small business owner, medium business owner, <laughs> startup owner, I mean, everyone just in general needs good sales skills. How did yeah. you develop your sales skills? So from what I've been told, I innately had them, but you can't rely on that. That's, mm. that's I've been lucky enough to, I've worked in a lot of corporate organizations. So I've worked at Tip Top Ice Cream which selling ice cream is a pretty handy thing to do. Yeah. So I learned a lot of the tactics around that, but also the strategies and had a lot of that really good sales training. I also had that out of Nestle. And so that kind of allowed me to refine my skills, but then also all the stuff you do outside of work. So when I'm working for not-for-profits, when I'm working at trying to sell an idea to someone in my t- sports team about why I need them to play a certain position in a certain place, a lot of the strategies are still there. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing as well is just be really clear about who you are and what you do. And if you're consistent with someone, then they'll trust you even if you're asking them to do something difficult or something that's not in their best interests. Mm. And I'm pretty consistent around, I want the best. I'm a glass half full person. I want everyone to generally succeed. I don't believe um, success is a, a zero-sum game where someone wins and someone loses. Yeah, that happens, but ultimately you can have positive results for both sort of situations. Oh, interesting. And I guess on the same sort of tact, I saw a statistic out of Harvard last week. It said 90% of businesses fail within the first two years. And the top reason that they fail is that they don't know how to market themselves effectively. So hey, what would you say to a new business owner they are about to start a business? They read this statistic. Yeah. What do they do next? So for some business owners, and I think this works for startups, is that sometimes you just don't jump in full bore. Mm. So you develop your idea. Sometimes a lot of our startups develop ideas while they're also working on their full-time job. So what you want to do is sense test an idea, make sure it works, it actually resonates with people. And if it resonates, then you can actually take that step and saying, okay, well, let's jump in full-time. Let's do some work in terms of getting some funding, putting some money behind it, or spending more time. I mean... The three key resources anyone's got is time, money, and people, and how you flexibly use that can make a difference for any business. If you personally believe in it, but you have someone who can help you with the business model, someone you can trust, that works really well. I have a brother and his partner have run an antique and collectible store for 20 odd years. Right. There's only so much marketing advice I can give to my brother before he tells me where to go, as is any good family relationship. but. 
talking to him, he understands his market, he understands what influences people and everything like that. So sometimes actually saying, okay, well, from a business side, how we work the rent, how we're working our advertising, how we're doing these pieces. And my job is kind of sometimes to ask him the questions and see what his answers are. And if that feels right for him, then he's making the right thing. But the challenge for small businesses, they don't have those experts to call on. And that's one of the things, reasons why I started Pashbury Marketing was mm. that if I can provide good experts, it kind of takes the pressure off in one area because a business owner has to worry about like not only just seven things, like 25 things. So whether it's marketing, legal, people, property concerns, actually delivering the product, all these different things. If they know they can have someone who's handling four or five of those things for them, then they can actually spend more of their time on some of the areas where they need to focus their time on. And I think every business benefits from that. I mean, that's why we have startups who try to scale. If they've got a really good CTO, it's like, okay, the pressure's off. I know that's sorted. Mm. Now I need to work out who in my team can do some of the more groundwork of getting new leads and who in my team can actually help me build a community event to reach out to people who are in need of help or need of assistance. And they're mm. the people that we're targeting. Mm. So you mentioned Passionberry, your latest business. Can you tell us the story of why you started Passionberry? Yeah, I think interesting thing for me is like I've been, I'm very lucky to have worked on several amazing projects and different things like that. And I think the ability to work with people who who are doing businesses that are they're wanting to either make a sizable change in what they do or are needing that sort of support and can actually kind of grow is quite interesting. I mean, I still do, I guess I'm a CMO for hire as well. So right. hence my work with Neighbour and Nextdoor, mm. I was working on that full time, well, close to full time, but also working on the passionary stuff of my clients. Right. I've worked with SMP Security and with Luxaflex and a few others, but there's this ability to find lots of really cool projects to work on. So I started it because a few of us were sitting around the table as marketers at this stage, a mix of marketing managers and heads of marketing and senior brand managers and going, wouldn't it be great if an agency could do this? Wouldn't it be great if an agency could actually put you first rather than you feeling like they're literally just trying to hold on to a 30 grand budget because that's the revenue that they need? Rather than necessarily sometimes putting your thing first. And it was interesting because I was talking to a lot of Aussies and I said, well, in New Zealand, <laughs> I've actually had a couple of those agencies who do that. And so I'd had an experience. We did a launch for um, Soothers Liquid Centers, which is a functional product. This was at Nestle Times. I had five or six agencies who I'd worked with for two or three years and finally got them all into the room to work on this project, which was a major one. We tried launching the brand three times in the market and it failed each time. My boss had failed. My boss's boss had failed. So everyone was kind of like, oh, what makes you different? So as a team, we came together and said, okay, well, this would be how we would do this. How do you actually create a sizable change with consumer? Also with the the channels, the supermarkets, remember these launches. And then everyone kind of worked together and said, okay, well, we think we should do this. And when you've got a PR team saying, actually, we need to spend some more money on sampling. So I reckon you guys use budget. We'll decrease a little bit of what we're doing because I don't think it's as important as this. That's a mindset change where everyone's going towards a common goal. And so I sort of said, well, what if... I started off working on, on Luxflex where I had a good relationship with the head of marketing who's a, a super talented CMO and she just needed help to organize the local stores and the franchises. So we just said, okay, we'll give them the advice that they need as an independent person. It's like, if they want to take it, that's great. And our job is to sort of sell that. But then there are corporates who need that. They need that organization that can step into a project and say, yeah, we'll take that. And it's a small project. Like a national agency is not going to do it or it's not in their skill set or they have to try and get freelancers in. But it's something we can do. And so what's happened is over time, we've then been that agency who's your MacGyver type element of, okay, can you do this? And I said, well, we don't have that skills in-house, but here's two freelancers who are awesome who like to work with us. Right. Do you want me to put you in touch with them or do you want me to project manage it for you? How would you like that to work? Sometimes they go directly in to that organization and there's no benefit for me, which I'm fine with because I'm helping my client get to where they need to get to. Mm. 
So it's around being a really flexible resource. So we have our tagline or kind of what we say as a one-liner is experienced marketing specialists available as you need them, tailored to your project. Right. So I don't have to sell this graphic designer 40 hours a week, every week Mm. to my clients. It's like, well, no, here's nine graphic designers. Now you need this sort of budget. So that probably takes it about four of them. (laughs) You need someone local. Okay. That leaves us with these three and you're needing a branding project for an idea which have said, I need it to be orange and here's a name, go create me a brand. Mm. There are only so many graphic designers who can do something like that versus say where you've actually got a nice, neat boxed brief. Yeah. So, okay, here's the designer I'd recommend. They've done these sort of things before, go for it. And it takes pressure off our clients. The yeah. corporates and the mid-levels, they go, okay, Jeff's got this. Jeff and his team have got this. This is great. Mm. And then, so we kind of go from there. That sounds like an amazing approach. Yeah, it's doing the right things in the right way for the right people. Mm. And it doesn't always work. And we want to only work with partners who appreciate us as well as kind of understand what we try and offer. And so we have, a lot of our projects are ad hocs with the bigger sort of organizations, but it's the same approach I take with startups. It's the same approach I've taken with how I build corporate projects when I was working on the client side with Nestle and both here in Australia and in New Zealand. You know, how do you build a team that can get to you where you need to get to? And so that's kind of one of the things that define us and it's having the right attitude but lucky enough to have those people in both my teams and everything else saying actually no we need to do it we need to look at it and understand that the start is saying us we should do something different and if you're flexible enough to willing to listen to somebody then you're more likely to find the right results rather than just go steaming down ahead down the track so yeah so what are your main pain points at Passionberry at the moment? I mean, what's in your black box? What problems are you currently trying to solve? Yeah. So the interesting thing for me was at the moment, it's the same problem we've been trying to solve <laughs> since we started. Yeah. So that's around sort of local marketing. And so in an ideal world, it's a model where local marketing is done by true marketing experts because the stores don't know is, is the guy from Yellow Pages just selling at me or is, is this agency know what they do? at a price that a local business can afford, as yeah. you can imagine, be, uh, especially in Sydney, but even across Australia, not using 100% AI or using, it's actually developing processes, but not just assuming a computer system is going to do that because humans connect with humans. Yeah. So you actually need to have that sort of both digital and physical approach to your plans. And although it was scary looking at some of the latest sort of computer created humans I've seen on the, on the business <laughs> going, that looks really real. Yeah, <laughs> It's getting a bit scary, isn't it? Yeah. And I was the other thing was men's mental health and a couple of different approaches to that. So there's a couple of really good startups who are doing some space that are directly dealing with that. But also if you can take pressure off people, Mm. their mental health improves. So sometimes it's about providing products or services that make your life easier. Mm. So as a scallop I'm working on right now, I'm someone and then there's a couple of startups I'm sort of supporting at the moment. Yeah, so. Amazing. So you mentioned, I get the local businesses, the small guys who yeah. they might not have any online presence. I mean, what's the best way to, for those guys to get started? So half of it is to start because nearly every local business is scared of making a mistake. Right. And you know what? That's completely fair enough. Mm. We've all been in that area was, how do I take the first step? Yeah. And sometimes it's about lifting the left foot and then placing it in front of you. Mm. So I think one of the things is have a look at what a lot of other people are doing but then also be really clear about who you are, who you're trying to talk to, and how you can provide value. Mm. So it's not about selling. Like if you do a good enough job with everything else, you will sell no matter what. But how are you helping them solve a problem? Here's our advice. Here's something that we've done. Our clients seem to come in with these sort of problems. Here's generally the solutions that we recommend. If you're looking for someone who wants to create a beautiful interior design, 
Here's another business we'd recommend. Here's um, like a favorite article that we've seen about trends that are coming out from this great organization that we really love working with. Build your story in the same way as you've built your career or you've built who you are. Mm-hmm. So I still believe I'm still a bit, I guess, and I know it's a bit of a, there's a view about brands being human and stuff like that. But I think local businesses have the absolute advantage in that area because sure. sometimes you are the face of that organization. Mm. And being able to do that at a high level, at a corporate level, is stuff that I've actually been able to do, but it's so much more harder. Yeah. So a lot of everything that we do at local applies corporately. The amount of times I've heard, but you've not worked with a $20 million budget. And I've said, $20 million is made up of $21 million budgets and it's made up of $10,000 ideas. And so the point is if you can, if you build it from the bottom up as much as you take a top-down uh, approach, that's how you spend the money. It's just adding an extra mm. zero sometimes, yeah. which is a lot easier than Nestle's of the world's money, like the corporate's money, the Combanks and whatever big organizations or Ubers spend. Yeah. It's a lot easier when it's their money, not yours. And so as a store owner, talking to them, it's about showing them what their return is, but also trying to find a way where they understand it actually moves them where they want to get to. Mm. which is a business that they're proud of, a business that allows them to spend time with their family, but also meet really good people and work with really good people. And actually, for some of them, it's about making a difference in their community, but that's a side piece of making sure that there's money coming on the table for their family, because ultimately that's the reason why they've got there for flexibility. And then my dad was an electrician and I watched the struggles. Mm. And I love my father, not only just for being my father, but for what he did and the approach and how he treated people and everything else and the love that he got back was huge for me. And at his funeral, it was amazing for me to see everybody and people who I'd 10 years ago when I was like um, 10 or something like that come out and just talk about him. And it's just like, wow. that's what you want to create because at the mm. end, that's, that's the longer legacy you have is that the impact you have on the people who are still around to be able to help them live better lives. So all these lessons you take from life and you apply them to what you do. So it's really interesting that you mentioned your dad because it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how have your parents influenced you in your business journey? So, I mean, when I was growing up, I had a sister two years younger. So my mum took five years off work. She had a lot of side hustles, you know, piano teacher, ironing, dancing classes. I mean, also, I mean, today there's a lot of second generation businesses, parents handing the business down. What do we learn from our parents and what did you learn from your parents growing up and how have they shaped your business journey? I think the parents are the people we spend most of our time with up until when we sort of get into our teenage years. You kind mm. of just see how they operate and you, you learn what to do and what not to do. And yeah. I was lucky enough to learn a lot more about what to do. And so I'm very fortunate for that. I mean, I know we talk about dad, but mum, <laughs> serial entrepreneur, but <laughs> like in a very, very small sort of sense, like mum came from, she had parents, then she had two kids early on in her life and then she had to leave her first husband. And so then she was literally trying to survive. Wow. And so I didn't understand that until I got into my late 20s or 30s when mum actually would talk about that. So, But when I look back, it makes perfect sense versus what she then did when I was there. So the homegrown garden was huge because she believed in using vegetables and and saving money that way. So she loved to try and do something she was passionate about, but then find a way to make money from it. But enough just to allow her to actually keep doing it. So she would do um, knitting and, and knit clothes for people and sometimes myself, which naturally I'd try not to wear in public. <laughs> but my brother, myself, I think suffered from bowl haircuts. Bowl, it's like, I think that stopped when I was about eight, which was <laughs> thankful. But, 
And I've learned from that lesson today to get proper haircuts. Uh. <laughs> but then, you know, she'd do a lot of stained glass and she would create these amazing pieces. I Not only she would go to classes to learn, but she was self-taught and then she would surround herself with other people who could help her, but also she'd help them. And she was very giving with her time. And one of the lessons I felt that she was way too giving, like she'd give so much to other people. Sometimes I wish she'd give a little bit to herself. And it was just about how she built this community that enabled her to do more things than she could have if she was by, then by herself or just with the husband and the kids. And for me, I know I've taken that into my life here because I'm single with currently no kids, no sort of family side, but I've built a family of people around me who mean the world to me and, and support me and I will support them to the ends of the earth if I can. But like, I'm able to do so many more things with that community than I wouldn't be if I didn't have them. I think that's something I learned from my my mum as much as the entrepreneurial side. It's also that community side. And obviously, it's a lot harder nowadays because we don't have as much of that community and we maybe have it through the schools if you've got kids and stuff, but super important. Mm, So the lesson is everyone listening, if you own a business, phone or message your mum and dad today and tell them thank you. (laughs) Yes, definitely thank your parents. Um, Sometimes even if you don't feel like you want to, (laughs) you should thank them. Yes. So, I mean, you're doing amazing work at Passion Marie. So taking a bit of a personal angle now, are there any investments that you've made in yourself? It could be a course, a tool uh, that have made a massive difference in the last sort of one to two years? I haven't been able to find that sort of that one piece, mm. but I've been actively looking. Right. Like you consider, do you want to do an MBA or not or that sort of thing? Or what are the digital online courses you should be looking at? Mm. So I try and, so my commitment to me is I try and make sure I'm doing one course a month on something. Right. So is it a LinkedIn learning course, the masterclass courses that are from the States, Steve no. Martin talking about comedy. Like I haven't done that one yet and that's <laughs> on my list, <laughs> but I try and just to see if there's something that resonates with me that I want to spend more time on. Mm. And so there's a couple of courses I'm looking at, I'm going, okay, they look pretty good. Yeah. But I haven't necessarily found one which I've gone and gone all in on. Right. So I'm still kind of looking. I find reading good books, reading good articles, following good podcasts like this one, but also following sort of uh, blogs and and idea thinkers. Mm. A lot of it feels sometimes a bit consumable in the sense that you see something on LinkedIn and it's the ne- you're on to the next thing and you're on to the next thing. I think yeah. it's the when you know that you see something and you stop and you think and you read and you go and then you save it and then you go back and read it again and you want to use it for something else. And it's trying to find those people who do that a little bit more often, say, than everyone else. Yeah. So you mentioned podcasts. Any recommendations on marketing or business podcasts? I think the the Mark Burris one is mm. quite good. I've, a friend of mine who is from Nabo, uh, Milosh, um, he's got the the Unicorn sort of podcast. So okay. for Unicorn Hunter. <laughs> um, so, and that's sort of quite still early stages, but Milosh's thinking is quite an interesting way because he's not only a CTO who understands business having worked on a lot of startups. So that's quite interesting. I have to admit, I'm not as much of a podcast person as I am mm. some of the written things. I find that to get myself into the right frame of mind during the day, I have to listen to music. Right, And right. that gets me into the mindset of where I need to be, positive thinking, all that sort of stuff. And then mm. I kind of might do some reading, a lot of video watching sometimes as well, Yeah, just in different areas where I'm trying to learn something new. So what about books? Are you a big reader? The last six months have been manic. <laughs> and so I have a pile of 12 unread books. Oh, wow. One book I actually want to go back to in the same way that there's something that resonates with you is a book I recommend is the Marketing Warfare book. So it talks about not only the strategy, but how you execute and how you pivot versus what your competitor's doing and, and understanding that. You adapt to what your competitors give you. And actually, that's the easiest book I've been able to give to some of my juniors and say, listen, I've told you this, I've shown you this, 
go and read this. And so because I'm reviewing what we're doing from a local marketing perspective and what may be the next thing that's coming up in 12 months that I need to set up this business for in the next three months to have that process available for when it actually arrives, I'm actually going back to read that book. No, nice. Yeah, but there's lots of, I generally read lots of autobiographies and stories about they talk about what they've done, but you actually have to understand the thinking behind it. That's the learning. So, no, oh, definitely check that out. And that will be in the show notes along with everything else that Jeff has mentioned today. And final question, Jeff, it's a bit of an abstract question. We like to ask all our guests this one to get some creativity flowing. So, you're on the first flight to Mars with Elon Musk and the first settlers aboard the SpaceX Starship rocket. What business do you start when you land on Mars and how would you market it to the new Martians? <laughs> so one of the things for me is become indispensable. Right. So if you become indispensable, not only do you solve someone's problems and do it in a way that actually improves their lives, but they're more likely to get other people to come and use you because you also reflect nice on them. So if I'm taking that philosophy, because we're the first settlers, I'd say like a personal concierge. Okay. So help people start their lives on Mars. So it might be, especially with the first ones are starting as they arrive, making sure they're having a good experience. How do you find where you live? How do you get all the different sort of things and actually help them um, in that way? You kind of, once you've done that, they're all very happy, get some testimonials, build a referral <laughs> system. But then what you do is you would be working with Elon Musk and saying, hey, listen, I can provide the service that can get more people onto Mars for you. Right. And he's like, right. That sounds like a really good idea, but I don't need anybody. I need people who are going to pay like a million, two million, whatever the latest prices to get up to Mars, right? <laughs> yep. So what you do is you might help find them, but if he's finding them, you're helping people have a better experience in mm -hmm. terms of going there. Because then they, if they're having a good experience on Mars, they'll talk about their friends on Earth. Yeah. Why you should go up. Yep. So you'd have some pre-flight marketing on Earth and all that sort of stuff. Mm. You might build a system that makes their lives easier so that you're constantly solving their problems and that you're building data about them. Mm. Once you're building data, you actually can take that Amazon approach of, well, people who have had this problem may also want, you may also find this helpful as yeah, well. Nice. So, and just build that emotional relationship that it's actually people-based. So it's not just digital marketing, it's actually people there to welcome you. Hey, can we help you? So especially when you're in a new place, and I appreciate moving from New Zealand to Australia is not exactly like moving from Earth to Mars. <laughs> But I knew two people when I came here. Oh, wow. And for me, when I came to Sydney, which is where I first landed, and I've lived in Melbourne as well, the first nine months, I didn't feel comfortable at all. Everything was new. I didn't mm. know what the rules were. I didn't even know the non-official rules. Wow. So having someone to have helped me through that, and eventually I made lots of friends, as I, and that kind of help is invaluable. And it's something that you remember because it's when you're at your most vulnerable. Mm. So I'd go with something like that. Oh, sounds amazing. The ultimate Martian onboarding experience. <laughs> it's uh, data-driven as well. I'm going to get some referrals. Oh, I love it. So, Jeff, just wanted to thank you for the time that you've taken today and the value that you've dropped to the audience. I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to say before we wrap up and how can people get in touch? Yeah. So, um, listen, I hope it's been valuable. I don't like wasting people's time. I know how precious time is. It's the one thing you can't buy sometimes. No. So if anyone wants to get in touch, you can find me on Passionary Marketing. I'm on LinkedIn. So if anyone's looking for, from a corporate perspective, if you're looking for a CMO to hire, give me a bell. I'll see if I'm available. But if you want an agency that can actually help you and can work with other agencies without causing problems, then you should definitely give us a call. We've got lots of good testimonials and referrals. So happy to help anybody who just wants to have a chat as well. So if they just want to have a chat, I'm here to help. Awesome, Jeff. And you can view all the show notes, which will feature all the resources that Jeff's mentioned at metagy.com forward slash podcast. Jeff, it's been fun. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Brendan. From Metagy, this is the Forward Thinking Podcast. 
I hope you got a lot of value and actionable tips from today's episode. If you like what you heard, you can help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. If you know a business owner who needs help with their marketing, and I mean, don't we all know one of those guys, tell them to check us out. Never miss another episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more about Metagy and get a listener-exclusive three-month free trial, visit us at metagy.com forward slash podcast. You can also view all of the resources and tools mentioned in this episode at metagy.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, why not listen to some other episodes and join the world's leading community of forward-thinking marketers. I'm Brendan Hill, your first business connection, and I'll catch you next week for another award-winning episode of the Forward Thinking Podcast.